What does it mean to be designed for good while living in a culture that sometimes seems to reward the bad? This is part two of our discussion of Dr. Kevin Brown's book, Designed for Good, Rediscovering the Idea, Language, and Practice of Virtue. If you haven't listened to part one of this podcast, we invite you to check that out. In it, Dr. Brown said that each ethical decision we make changes us. Every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses, into something a little different than what it was before. Welcome to Belonging and Becoming, a podcast from Asbury University. I'm Doug Walker, Professor of Media Communication, and I sat down earlier with Asbury President Dr. Kevin Brown. We talked about how the practice of virtue can actually lead us to becoming the best version of ourselves, and how the choices we make impact who we are. In part one, Dr. Brown discussed how the Latin word for virtue refers to power or the capacity to achieve something significant which leads to the question where we pick up the interview today. You talked briefly about the idea of power and the meaning that it also has. Can you tell us a little more about why this is significant to us? I think it's significant for a few reasons. I I like to say that at Asbury, we have an optimistic theology, uh, our Wesleyan holiness theology, that we can experience victory, upright, godly living within this present life to mirror what Paul said in Titus. I was talking to a friend once, and she made an interesting statement. She said, the best thing I can say about one of her loved ones is that they have all the right answers, but they don't have the power to live up to them. So they know the right thing in their head, but they can't live it out in any way. And I thought, that is less of a descriptive statement and really more of an insult. This is why I think this this notion of virtuous power is so important. We have a real capability of living into what is good and what is right and what is true and honoring those around us, serving the world, adding value, being light, and letting our light so shine before others. I think for you and I, we can probably give many instances in our lives where we were won over, not simply by the words or the thoughtfulness or the articulation of right and wrong that someone offered, but we looked at their life, and their life exhibited a kind of power, and that power is what won us over. might be odd to mention this in this podcast, but I was a big fan of Simon and Garfunkel growing up, and in one of their songs, Kathy's song, the closing line is, I have come to doubt. All that I once held is true. I stand alone without belief. The only truth I know is you. And I thought that was such a lovely line that even when they have come to doubt everything they believe, they see truth in a person, uh, that a person that can exhibit truthfulness. And I have been won over to the Wesleyan Holiness theology, not simply because of how it was stated, but because there were men and women in my life I could look at and say, they live that truth. They have power. And so that idea had traction in my mind because I saw it lived out before me. And I think that is so important. You talked about this idea of virtue and practicing it. Uh, I was just going back today and reading through Second Peter where in the New King James Version it talks about add to your faith virtue. 
And I think in the New American Standard version, it, it translates it as moral excellence. So how do we add to our faith virtue or moral excellence? As persons of faith, how do we practice this virtue? There's a quote by C.S. Lewis that uh, I think is so wonderful. It's a simple quote, but it conveys a lot of information. He basically says, people think of Christian morality as this bargain where God says, if you keep rules, I'll reward you. And if you don't, I'm going to punish you in some way. And that's a kind of morality I think a lot of people have grown up with. C.S. Lewis writes this. I don't think that's a very good way of thinking about it. Rather, I would say every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, the part of you that chooses into something a little different than what it was before. And Lewis ends that passage by saying, each of us at each moment is becoming a little more heavenly or a little more devilish. We are becoming something through our practices. I I watched a movie several years ago with some students here on campus. It was stories of different men who had had uh, sexual brokenness in their life in some way. And one of the men had been chatting with women and they were not his wife. He was married and he'd been chatting for women for some time. And one night, a woman he was chatting with inappropriately wrote him back and said, you know, I'm in your city tonight. Why don't we get together? And he said, that night I crossed a line. Now, I don't disagree with the expression that he chose, but more accurately, (laughs) we might say he's crossed thousands of lines. This was just simply one more line. In other words, he didn't wake up that morning and say, I think today I'll have an affair. There are lines that are crossed. There are little practices uh, habituating him, making him into a certain kind of person uh, over that period of time. So I think that's very important to first recognize we are becoming something through the things that we do, the things we imbibe the people we surround ourselves with, the material we read, the images that we see, the things we think about in our personal moments and our collective moments. I I think to get at your question, we could certainly begin with those historic practices of Christian discipleship that aren't terribly popular with people sometimes, and yet I think they're absolutely vital. There's an old Nazarene professor, Richard Taylor. He says, the world is filled with naturally brilliant people who will never rise above mediocrity because they won't make the sacrifice superiority requires. And a superior life in any regard will naturally require sacrifice. So I think when we look at different fasts that we may engage in, when we look at scripture reading, really steeping ourselves in the Bible, when we look at the norms of truth-seeking and how do I furnish my mind, how do I learn to think about things, how do I know when I'm wrong, what's persuasive to me, and why is that, how do those norms govern me, how do I think about my prayer life, my church life, my communal life, these Christian practices are making us into something. If we engage in these practices, the notion is through discipleship, we become more like the person of Jesus Christ. But again, I I think this is where it's easy to misrepresent influence and think that we start from some neutral position and then we will build ourselves into something. There is no neutrality. And certainly in the marketplace of ideas, no alternative is ever neutral. 
There is another quote that I jotted down from the book that I liked that is related to this, but uh, you say in there that the virtuous life is the best life. The practice of virtue leads to the best version of ourselves. What do you mean by that? There's an idea that has certainly found its way into, I think, our Western consciousness that goes something like this. You can be a follower of Jesus, but you're going to have this very boring, prudish, puritanical life. Jonathan Haidt, the author, says devout Christians are often lampooned by secular liberals as uptight, pleasure-fearing prudes. <laughs> so there's this notion that your life's pretty boring and you don't get to do the fun, you don't get to go party, but then you'll die and you'll get to have this really incredible, you'll be on a cloud with a harp and have a great feast, et cetera, et cetera. And all those people who were partying before will be suffering somewhere. I think this is a, a very poor story for a variety of reasons. But one of the reasons gets very much at your question, and that is if we were made for communion with God, if we were made for communion with other, if we were made for this, this kind of wholeness, that fulfilling, uh, living into this design is actually associated with significant satisfaction. So there, there's an Aristotelian term called eudaimonia, or the more British eudaimonia. And the idea, it, it, I think it technically means good demon, uh, but this is a blessed life, a, a flourishing life, that living into the virtues is actually your best life, your most fulfilling, your most significant, your most gratifying life that you can have. And Albert Outler made this point about John Wesley. He said he was a eudaimonist. He believed that the holy life was not only the life that we were made for, but it's our best life. And so we often talk about holiness as the, the benefit of others. Uh, if I'm holy and you're holy, then others in our lives will be recipients of that holiness. But we often forget in that tradition, we're the recipients of that. To me, th this is captured so well in Ephesians 2.10. The, the NRSV version of this says, for we are what he has made us. So if we look at the first half of that verse, God has made us. Uh, who, who am I? Who's Kevin Brown? We are, I am what God has made me. We are what he has made us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand to be our way of life. And again, I, I think this relates to this, this notion of be ye perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. I was talking to a pastor about this once. And he said, you know, it's a bit like when you hit that nail in the wall to put the picture frame up, and sometimes it's, it's leaning to the left and sometimes to the right, but when you get it on there and you step back and it's just perfectly flush with the wall and horizontal and even, it's doing the thing that it was designed to do. And so living into this idea, this eudaimonia, uh, is actually associated with wholeness and fulfillment now not simply in some kind of afterlife notion that, that is often propagated. If someone came to visit Asbury uh, and stepped onto the campus, where would they learn more about this virtuous life? Would it be in the classroom? Would it be in other settings on campus? How might they see this virtuous life at work if they stepped onto Asbury's campus? I would hope that they would see it everywhere. Certainly that it would be taught in the classroom that we want to be people of a certain orientation. Um, we often say our students, we don't view them 
simply as brains that we populate with information and slap some kind of a credential onto them and move them down the assembly line into the marketplace, but rather they're being formed in a certain kind of people. One of the notions of wholeness that I think would show up on our campus is that we talk about heart holiness in chapel. Our students are involved in chapel, and this is a time for this edifying, belonging with each other, worshiping together, hearing a message that will be spiritually edifying to them. But then what about what's happening in the dorms? What's happening on the athletic field? What about in the dining hall, the cafeteria, the food that they eat? All of these things relate to wholeness. John Wesley Hughes, our founder, wrote about this very well. He wanted to to engage the spiritual nature, the souls of our students, but also the the intellectual promise that they have so that they have well-furnished minds, but also the physical nature of them, that they're engaging in rhythms and practices where they can experience rest and recreation and fullness and wholeness in a physical sense. So I think a, a true Wesleyan campus would be a campus where this is evident throughout every dimension of what we do. What does all this mean for faith-based institutions like the church or Asbury or other Christian schools? So what does this mean to us as we look at it on the broader picture of moral and ethical opportunities today? There was a book written, I believe in the 80s, by Alastair McIntyre called After Virtue. And he very much was getting at this same idea of virtue, that life is meant to be lived meant to be governed in a particular way, that humans have a purpose, humans have an end, humans have a teleology. And so what would a world be like after virtue, after we've abandoned this notion? And he says, it's a world where we will use moral language, but it will really be this kind of masquerade for otherwise emotivistic intentions, a motivism where it's basically what we feel and what we want, maybe a grab at power. So we'll still use the moral language, but it's really just reflecting our emotions and our feelings and what we want. It's not grounded in any kind of objective reality, creating what one commentator calls a theater of illusions. The the question, when we talk about virtue and we talk about the opportunities today and the world that we're in, I think we are very much in a secular age, and I'm using the expression based on Charles Taylor. Charles Taylor talks about there are different ways to think about a secular age, but this third way he talks about is it's not an age of unbelief, it's an age of believing otherwise. So now there's this marketplace of belief. And so the question becomes, how how do you bear witness within a secular age? I think most of our professors will tell you it won't happen through propositional arguments. In fact, If you want to get a young adult to shut down pretty quickly, approach them with some kind of propositional argument. But I think there are some other ways to do this. And and let me name a couple. One is through the imagination. Alison Milbank is a theologian in Britain, and she has written about imaginative apologetics. Absolutely lovely. And in one of her talks she gave, she used this expression that our music and our symbols and icons and our plays and larger narratives that we tell in our literature, these things are all performances of an argument. And I thought that was a really beautiful way to put it. We're performing the argument. We're not arguing the argument, we're performing it. And so I think there's really something 
to that notion that if we want to affect the world around us, we need to find creative ways to burrow into the imagination and tell a better story and tell a different narrative that captures their imagination. I mentioned Charles Taylor. He's talked about the character that others exhibit. He was actually asked, so how do people of faith bear witness in a secular age? And he said, the Christians I know who are most influential to those around them do it by what they are and not by the arguments they deploy. And I thought that was a really fascinating. They do it by what they are, how they live, the, the truth they exhibit, as we talked about earlier. Around here, uh, I've, I've been very keen to share a Gypsy Smith quote. Gypsy Smith was a, a British evangelist, and he says, there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian, and most people will never read the first four. And it's a really fascinating thought. As I go about my daily life, I'm a gospel, whether through the words that I use or the behaviors that I exhibit, but is my life a living testimony that Jesus is Lord, or is it testifying to something else? I think another way we bear witness is through wisdom. I think one, what you might call epistemic category, is right and wrong. And I very much believe in that. But another is wise and foolish. A couple of years ago, Steve Deneff, he speaks regularly at Asbury. He's a pastor at College Wesleyan Church at Indiana Wesleyan University in Marion, Indiana. And he did a series on Proverbs. It was tremendous. And it was very prescient for the moment that we're in now. This was maybe three or four years ago. But in that, he said, today, no one is looking for the church or to the church for answers about right and wrong. Really, they don't care what you think about right and wrong. Rather, they're asking a different question. Does it work? In other words, the paradigm is not simply the moral paradigm of right and wrong. The paradigm is, give me something that works, wise, foolish. What an opportunity to demonstrate wisdom. I think I've read Proverbs more than any other book in the Bible since I started <laughs> in this position. And you can see that it just clearly speaks to the necessity of wisdom and the consequences that are associated with folly. In addition to wisdom, the last thing, and it relates to these first three that I would mention, is fruit. There's a fascinating verse in Ephesians 5, 8, and again, this is the NRSV version, but the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And I love this because what Paul is saying is light bears fruit. Light is generative. Light creates. And what does it create? Well, it can be found, that creation can be found in all that is good and in all that is right and in all that is true. And it's interesting to contrast this with something like Jude, where the author of Jude is chiding these people who call themselves Christians and yet calls them waterless clouds or autumn trees that bear no fruit. They don't do anything. They might talk a good game, but they're ultimately not bearing fruit. So I think that this is an age where we need to burrow our way into the imaginations of others. This is an age where we need to demonstrate our faith through the character that we have, through the wisdom that we employ, and through the fruit that we ultimately bear. That is the kind of virtue that the world needs to see, and that is the kind of virtue that the world cannot do without. If the church and institutions like Asbury lived into that really well, then it's not whether a secular society can afford to have Christian institutions. The relevant question becomes, can they afford not to have them? 
based upon the fruit that is borne out by followers of Jesus Christ. And that concludes our interview for today. As Dr. Brown suggested in that interview, to truly matter, virtue must be lived out. For 20 years, Asbury graduate Joe Pitts aimed to do that while representing Pennsylvania citizens in the U.S. House of Representatives. After Mr. Pitts' retirement, Asbury became home to the Pitts Center, designed to expand the university's civic engagement. Before we wrap up today's episode, we've asked Asbury Media Communications Senior Caleb Shipman to fill us in on what the center is up to and how they've adapted to the challenges of the pandemic. If you walk into Kinlaw Library on Asbury University's campus, you might notice a relatively new installment toward the back of the first floor the Joe Pitt Center for Public Policy. The Pitt Center has been something that we have been slowly building over the course of time. This is Dr. Steve Clements, an Associate Professor of Political Science, Dean of the College of Arts and Sciences, and Director of the Pitt Center. The center came to be shortly after former U.S. Representative and Asbury alum Joe Pitts retired from Congress in 2017. When he retired, Dr. Gray had been interacting with him from time to time. And when he mentioned to her at some point that he was, he was going to be retiring from Congress, that's when they began the conversation about potentially housing his papers. And we set up an office in that corner of Ken Law Library devoted to promoting politics and policy here on campus. The Pitt Center serves as a way to expand the university's civic engagement. Since its founding in 2018, the center has hosted speakers from around the nation to discuss many issues including politics, humanitarian relief, cultural renewal, and religious freedom. Typically, we would have a speaker come to campus and then do a talk, like in the Kinlaw boardroom, for example. We'd often have 30, 40, 50 people, both students and community members, come and hear the speaker. And then we would go and have a dinner together at Windsor Manor, followed by a more informal conversation with the speaker, a fireside chat. We did quite a number of those events, having a sort of communal meal together and conversation over the meal at Windsor Manor has been one of our kind of favorite elements of this. But of course, we haven't been able to do that since last spring. And by last spring, Dr. Clements is referring to the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And with it, the way in which the center operated had to change. There are just a variety of things that have diminished our ability as faculty members to interact on a one-to-one basis as much as we normally do with students. But even with the limitations that the pandemic has brought, the Pitt Center is still finding ways to carry on. One of the major annual events the Pitt Center has been involved with over the years is the Christian Student Leadership Conference in Washington, D.C. While the conference can't be an in-person experience this year, they've still found a way to participate. In its place, NAE decided to do a uh, virtual uh, Christian Student Leadership Conference. We're going to do our own version of participation in the CSLC here from campus. And it doesn't just stop there. The Pitt Center is still continuing to fill up their calendar with events to engage with students in a safe way. We've got a number of events, Zoom-based events, that we're in the process of finishing up. On February 17th, that's a Wednesday during the lunch hour, we're actually going to have a Zoom session that Joe Pitts is going to be involved with. And then in March, we're planning to have another alum, Homer Pointer. He's a 1970 grad, do a Zoom-based program with us. We're still in the process of trying to nail down our plans for the April version of this. And some of our conversations have involved fall sessions. Now, whether those will be in-person, sort of face-to-face or Zoom-based, we're not sure. The pandemic has caused many struggles for all of us. But with these struggles have come lessons learned. And for the Pitt Center... 
they've learned how technology can be used to broaden the scope of conversations they can engage in. One of the things that this has sort of obliged us to do is go ahead and move into sort of Zoom-oriented programming. Now, we're not going to be solely doing Zoom-based things, but we'll incorporate Zoom when it makes sense. Let me just give you an example. Some of us are fans of the University of Virginia sociologist James Davison Hunter, who's written a lot about culture wars in our politics and public affairs. If we tried to have him to campus, it would probably take us six or eight months to get on his schedule, and then it would cost thousands of dollars to bring him here physically. But in lieu of that, I could probably get in touch with him and we could set up a one-hour Zoom session that would be relatively low overhead for him and that he would be likely to put on his docket within a couple of months. So, I mean, I think the ability of us to tap people and plug them into campus-based events without spending lots of money and having to go through months and months and months of planning, I think the possibilities there are much greater in the Zoom era than before. If you'd like to learn more about the Pitt Center, you can go to asbury.edu slash pittcenter. That's asbury.edu slash P-I-T-T-S center. Our thanks to senior Caleb Shipman for that report. We also want to invite you to join us again in two weeks for a special treat as Dr. Kevin Brown will interview Asbury graduate Sean Opeblo. Dr. Opeblo is professor of music at Wheaton College, the winner of the 2020 American Prize in Composition in the Wind Band Division. He has an amazing story of how God brought him into a Salvation Army church and then to Asbury and far beyond. That's coming up on Belonging and Becoming a production of Asbury University. If you have feedback or suggestions, please write us at belong at asbury.edu.